Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lakestar, one of the leading European venture capital firms. Lakestar's mission is to find, fund, and grow disruptive businesses that are enabled by technology and founded by exceptional entrepreneurs in Europe and beyond. Founded by Klaus Ammels, the team's early investments include Skype, Spotify, Facebook, and Airbnb. And since raising its first fund in 2012, Lakestar now manages an aggregated volume of over 2.8 billion euros across their early and growth stage funds. The team actively advises and supports portfolio companies in marketing, recruitment, technology, product development, and regulatory insight, accompanying founders from seed to early stage, growth stage, or exit. Lakestar's games and media team has made 18 investments, including 1047 Games, Zebedee, Modulate, and Trace. If you're interested in learning more or getting in contact with the Lakestar team, simply go to lakestar.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable, and actually the final one of the year. We've got some great panelists here, of course, as usual. We've got Tammy, Dave, and Taylor coming back here. So we are actually going to take advantage of this being the last one of the year, and we're going to be pretty prediction-heavy this episode because we've talked about the past, kind of reflecting on the year, some of the things that have happened, biggest winners and losers. Now we're actually going to look forward going into 2024, obviously, putting on our, uh, our prediction caps and not really so much our analyst caps for the past numbers, but we're going to be trying to use those to project forward. So hopefully we make the right guesses. Obviously, you're going to be holding our feet to the fire if we make some wild guesses here in this episode. But uh, yeah, a quick follow-up to a topic from last week that we just wanted to make sure that everyone got updated on because it happened pretty quick, was on the, uh, the ESRB rating Gods Unchained as adults only and potentially other Web3 games due to the NFT potential rewards. And actually, rather than that get reversed or changed in any way, Epic has said, okay, that's fine. If you're adults only, we will carve out an exception for Web3 games that are rated for that reason and just allow them to be on the store, which is cool. That was one of the outcomes we were hoping for. So kudos to Epic for jumping on that. Unfortunately, it may not help the Apple App Store unless they carve out an exception as well because Gods Unchained was trying to go to mobile. It has been for a while. We're actually hoping to get it out this month. I'm guessing that's probably not going to be the case now. So yeah, maybe we'll figure out something in early 2024. So there's one minor prediction, I guess, launch things off. But uh, yeah, we're just going to go through kind of topic by topic on some of the different areas and what might be going on with them next year. Hopefully all these have interesting things going on next year. But we'll just start off with the consoles. And uh, Taylor, what do you think is going to happen with consoles? Yeah, the, the console markets, it, it, it seems to be innovating extremely quickly. And there seems to be a lot of different strategies here. Obviously, Nintendo's had a, a long history of, of the hand, handheld strategy throughout their entire history. And now we're starting to see almost this competition between who can control and own the majority of the, the end user's time. And I think there's like really two core strategies here. And, and I will predict on which one I do think will be the best one, which will be either this the strategy to continue to keep people within your own ecosystem. This is essentially the Sony strategy. They obviously have the PlayStation. They launched the PSVR 2. They now have also launched the Portal 2. But I think what we're slowly seeing with 
with that ecosystem is that there's a lot of um, substitute opportunities here. And I think trying to keep people within your own ecosystem is going to be a struggle going forward. We obviously saw the PSVR2 drastically undersold expectations. I think at the beginning of the year, they were expecting 2 million sales. They ended up lowering that to a million and then only hit 600,000. And then now you have the, the Portal 2, which I, I would say it's artificially looking good because they had a limited supply. But even in, I think, the month of November, they were the fourth best selling console with without very much competition, which was a little bit, I would say, underwhelming to me. But I, I the, the way I view this going forward is you're not going to be able to compete continually by just building the, the same product for your own content. And if you look at this, I think Microsoft has a really compelling strategy here. The, the goal for them isn't to bring people into their own ecosystem. It's to bring their ecosystem to other gamers, whether that's going to the most recently announced partnership with MetaQuest and bringing the Game Pass to, to VR. There, there are concerns there, obviously, but I think the goal here is just, I just want to have more users have access to our ecosystem and to, to keep them playing within our ecosystem, no matter what access ecosystem they're actually using. And, and, and if you look at their general strategy, they've never, they're, they're pretty clear about not wanting to build their own VR headset. They either have, they do have the HoloLens or the and, and Vive within their ecosystem. But, and then when you also look at the handheld space, they're very open. Like, this is not something they want to go after going forward. And instead, it's just, hey, I want, I want you to be able to access us on Steam Deck. I want you to access us on potentially the Nintendo Switch. Uh, we, want to, we want you to be able to access us through PC and mobile and, the goal there is just, no, it, it makes way more sense. It's less capital intensive to, to not build your own hardware and just offer the subscription service with all your content available. I think the biggest news, obviously, is Nintendo Switch. It's, it, can't be, it can't really be a prediction for 2024. So I think the goal here is to launch that in 2025. But that will compete directly, according to them, with the, the quality and fidelity of your Xbox and, and PlayStation. I, I, I think I have some some hesitancy around that, around if they'll actually be able to reach that quality of content. But I, I, I do believe the, the the winner that's going to come out in the space is going to continue to be Microsoft because they're just not actually even competing in that space. Every ecosystem is going to need them more than Microsoft needs that ecosystem. They have the, they have the content, they have the user base. And I, and I think we'll continue to see them expand their content offering and just expand access to that through other con- consoles themselves. I think Sony's probably in the weirdest spot right now going forward. That it's going to be a struggle for them to continue to just they they they, they want to they, they seem to want to have their own walled garden, and I just don't think that from a consumer perspective is is what we want as gamers. We want to be able to access all the content we can wherever we are through whatever ecosystem we prefer. And going forward, I think we're going we're going to see Microsoft strategy continue to be the the, the winning strategy. the The jury's still out on the portal too. I think that'll be interesting to watch as they expand their their supply of of devices. They did sell them out. There was it was extremely hard to get them, but I think that's more of a strategy from Sony than anything else of make it seem like it's it's scarce and. We'll see if they can continue to, to scale up. But I mean, if they're going to try to compete with a Nintendo Switch 2 or whatever next generation Steam Deck we have, I think that's going to be a, a massive struggle. And then I think I, I, I just I just believe the PSVR 2 is 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 one of those one of those hardware pieces that isn't going to have enough to encourage you to buy that itself. You have to be a PlayStation player. You have to already be in the Sony ecosystem. You have to love that ecosystem and want to just bet on the 
the historical context of, of Sony's quality content going forward. And so I, I do believe we're going to see Microsoft win this fight. I, I, I just struggle to believe Sony is going to be able to really encourage the majority of their users to stay within the ecosystem as gamers just want, want to play different, different types of content. They just want to be able to use the, the form factor that is best for them. And I think that's going to be the strategy they'll have to go after. And then we'll, we'll, we'll see in a little while that the Microsoft only needed the Xbox. That's the, at, at the core of their business, Game Pass is going to be what I think is most successful. And I think is going to be the, the best opportunity to acquire new users and keep users within their ecosystem. So I guess the question I have then is, are you talking about Xbox being able to try to go everywhere that the players are? Obviously, I mean, unless I totally missed it, Xbox cloud gaming stuff is not available on Nintendo Switch currently, right? Despite the fact that you don't need higher end hardware for that. Not that Nintendo's ever been super great about like their online strategies in general. But I do wonder, would that'd be something they'd be able to even get on Nintendo Switch 2 or whatever they call it to be able to continue that strategy? Or is it not that big of a deal because like they're not necessarily trying to, to compete for that audience as much as like the PlayStation audience? Uh, obviously, like I don't, I don't see the portal supporting it as well, right? So more comes down to, for handhelds, maybe just the Steam Deck. What it co- and then your phone, of course, right? The potential, because you could run it on your phone currently. And then also whether or not Microsoft could potentially like trying to dip more into sort of the VR AR space as they had with the HoloLens. So like that, obviously they're testing that water in a way with mm. being on Quest, but that's a competitor's platform in a way. Although obviously Meta is not really so much in the console space. Like they are a bit, but that's that doesn't seem to be their play. They're still moving towards social aspects of that. We're hoping to at least with Horizon Worlds if they could turn that around and things like that. So going forward when it comes to those other platforms, like where mm. do you see Microsoft's strategy or just adaptations to not being able to execute on some of that. Yeah, I think we, I, I think we will see them push into the Switch market. And I think if Nintendo Switch has the capabilities to to run games that are AAA high quality, we could see them offering a game a version of Game Pass through the Switch. Now, the issue is, is I don't know if Nintendo is willing to risk their brand, and I think they want to their entire, I would say their entire strategy going back is just, we have the we have this content. You come to Switch. For our content and our content is perfect for this form factor but there doesn't seem to really be a reason like or they, it, there doesn't seem to be a compelling reason outside of brand for nintendo not to offer a game pass offering if if they can support it now i i would have i definitely have hesitancy around their ability to support cloud at any sort of quality that a consumer would love and the, the best part about switch is its portability and the fact that you can use it anywhere. And a lot of the games, I, I don't require a internet connection. They're single player games, but that's, that's core to allowing for cloud gaming. So I, I, I do think we will, we, my guess would be that we do see Microsoft and Nintendo partnering at some point for that, for the next generation switch. But if it didn't happen, I think it'd be more Nintendo's choice than, than Microsoft's. And then on the Oculus side, I, I, I think I would push back. I do, I, I do believe they are competitive. I, I think meta is, viewing the console i'm sorry viewing the oculus as a console itself and that's the direction i believe this is going to go it's it's not going to be as much a computing platform in the sense of ar or or mixed reality headsets it's, it's going to be focused more on this this is a games platform and or, or an entertainment system because obviously they will have the your fitness games your meditation platforms you'll you'll have your general games as well but i, I don't think the oculus is the oculus especially the quest three is it anywhere near the the level that it would take for this to become like an everyday all day use product 
there's there's a lot of hardware limitations there. There's just a form factor isn't where isn't what you want. And so I think they're going to continue to push into this console market. This is they're heavily investing in in the the Quest Store ecosystem. They're even continuing to support the Quest Labs ecosystem, which is their direct pipeline to their the next games that are going to be offered there. And I don't think Microsoft sees VR as like a, a, a core opportunity for them. They aren't building games at the same at any level close to like what Sony's even doing, nonetheless, meta as well. And so I, I think they're just going to continue to view this as, hey, this is just another ecosystem. We want our games we played on it. We're a games company. Wherever they can be played, they will be played. But I think Dave has brought up a good point even before we chatted of VR has a, a motion problem. It's just these games do need to be at a level of, of quality to, to make that experience good enough. And not just it's not just about access. It's about actually being able to play these games for long periods of time. And Meta is going to do anything to keep people in those ecosystems longer. And so they'll, they'll continue to, to, to make these partnerships and hopefully continue to increase the quality of their, their hardware to a point where you can play anything and you can spend time there. And this, this, is, this, this isn't just, it offers a different type of experience for users that I think will be coveted by, by the community. It's, as you move into VR, it's not just VR games anymore. It's, I'm playing my Xbox games as well. And I have the ability to create a bigger screen and do something that I think gamers just haven't been able to really do. I, I, and I, and my, my prediction is I, I, I do think Game Pass on Quest will become good enough and people will play play games through these, your, your artificially 80-inch screens that will create like a different level of immersion that you get playing on your TV or, or your monitor. And just to jump in one quick note and, and just my thoughts in, on the Nintendo Switch, especially like the, the Game Pass and Nintendo Switch piece, I do think that Nintendo has been opening up a lot more. Like the Switch itself opened up to indie games, big publishers, right? Like we're seeing catalog content being published there for from EA and the likes, right? So I think that it's not, you know, if we don't see Microsoft in, in the Game Pass as part of the Switch 2 offering, I think it's going to be potentially more of a read on Nintendo seeing that a bit more of as, as an existential thread in terms of actually competing for the subscription-based dollars from those players, as opposed to what kind of was more of a default for Nintendo of protecting their ecosystem. They still have a lot. It takes a, a big effort to get a game published on the Switch and approved. They're still very protective, and that's probably never going away, but I think it's going to be much more around if if they actually see that as a potential threat in terms of eating a part of their pie, basically. Yeah, just to, yeah. Just to add to that, yeah, they, they did sign, a Microsoft and have signed a 10-year contract to bring Call of Duty to Nintendo players. Now, that's not Game Pass. That is a different that, that different level of this, but yeah, there's, I, think, I think Nintendo is becoming much more open to expanding the content they they offer to players and i think call of duty alone as a as a franchise is is a, is a clear indication of the, this shift in types of games they want to offer to their players that's not call of duty is not a traditional nintendo type of game but making that commitment i think does give some hint to a larger commitment in the future to what what they're willing to give their players access to yeah, for me, I think the biggest question is actually around something that was just brought up, which is around approvals. 
So if you've got titles that have been you know, designed, built for a particular platform for the Xbox and then streaming it onto the, onto the Switch, you have the potential for a less than quality experience. And so I wonder if Nintendo, if they are interested in having you know, something like a you know, Game Pass coming in, if they have a, a secondary approval process where they say, look, We'll open it up, but we need to make sure that the players are going to have a good experience when they play on our platform. Um, I do think it does. I, I agree with you, Taylor, that I think this really is a Nintendo brand question than it is a willingness for Microsoft to work with with other partners. Microsoft certainly has demonstrated that, yes, they are willing to put the the, the Game Pass wherever and whenever they can. But, uh, yeah, I, I do think that this is a, it's going to be a question from Nintendo about what is the experience that the players are going to have? I wonder if they could get away with just making it so it requires a Nintendo online subscription to, to be able to play Game Pass so that way they get their their slice of that. I mean, that seems like a fair compromise, right? Where it's like, hey, just make sure you're still participating heavily in our ecosystem. Then yeah, go ahead and play those games because if those games aren't necessarily coming over here anyways, and if they are coming in over here, people would still prefer to play them locally on the on the console rather than via the cloud just most of the time right in general people unless they have a reason for the preference will usually prefer to not play the cloud version because it's just could be better performance especially for action-oriented games so i think that it's not a huge threat to them other than them again looking like they're behind on internet stuff which they've always been but they, i think they're also pretty comfortable with that it seems i don't imagine nintendo's like man i wish we had this cloud stuff gaming you know going like it's just gonna be like, yeah, well, okay well cool we'll see what they do and learn from it and do what we want to do going forward because nintendo doesn't seem to actually have to compete i mean i feel like the, the only time they've really tried to push forward maybe more than they really can is like on mobile where they tried to push into that and like some of it worked some of it didn't work and i feel like they've cooled on trying that experimentation but also sony hasn't really seem to do a lot there either. Like they haven't really pushed heavily into that space. I don't, I don't think we'll see like Sony games on Switch either, right? Like, I think that's pretty much a big, like not going to happen. But obviously the Xbox Game Pass, like cloud stuff does offer that weird opportunity where it's okay, that's okay because it's more like an app than it is a specific game. And there was all that contention over that on the app stores. Whereas are we rating this as a game? Do we rate individual games? Is this a loophole for the store? That kind of thing. Whereas Nintendo's not looking necessarily at it at, like the way Apple does, where it's like, I need that 30% of everything kind of mentality. Uh, so I think it's plausible. It's just a question of whether or not, like, again, they, they, they're okay with it. And if they are, I'm sure Microsoft's like, yeah, we're, we're going to do that then. Uh, and the fact that the discussions publicly around the Steam Deck have been pretty positive, even from Valve's side, shows that if you're not overprotective of your 30%, cut thing you're just like that's fine we just want gamers on here we want people buying this this hardware we want people in this ecosystem even if they're not necessarily always playing the games that we're selling that's fine i hope hope more of this ecosystem is like that but then saying taylor if that happens then we do see start to see sony as the loser in that because they're the ones not being comfortable being everywhere and finding a way to make that work and just behind on investing there now to be fair sony has made some investments in cloud technology i, I believe it was during the last year they bought a number of people that were involved in cloud technology. They have some of that on tap. They could be developing some of that kind of secretly. Obviously, they, they might be even using some of that in Portal to, to be able to help with that streaming technology. But I, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see if Sony's got something in their pocket. But they have pretty much bowed out of handhelds for the most part after the Vita. And they're just, no, we're not going to really do that anymore for now. But I guess time will tell on that. But 
I, I would, it's on the topic of subscriptions in general, obviously that's become a hot topic of the last year. And as, as Taylor points out, it's, that's certainly not going away. That's probably going to get much bigger as a, as a service, including others besides Xbox. And so Dave, uh, what, what do you think we're going to see for subscription gaming in general? Yeah, the way that I look at it right now, there are really four main subscription services. So Apple Arcade, Netflix, Xbox Game Pass, and PlayStation's offering. Just in reverse order, PlayStation certainly has been investing in, in streaming content, being able to stream their titles. They, they purchased David Perry's, was it Genkai, back in... Oh, wow. It was probably almost a decade ago, you know, eight, if not eight years ago. So they certainly have been interested in, in getting that technology into the PlayStation ecosystem. I don't really see them changing that much in terms of how they structure their offerings to the players. I expect that they will continue to look at continuing to broaden their overall library of games inside there, but I don't see them moving from their their internal position of not offering games day one or first-party titles or even third-party titles day one on the service. I do see them as continuing on as this is more of a, a legacy title type of subscription service. If you want the latest and greatest for PlayStation, you're going to go out and buy the either the digital or the, or the physical copy of it. Xbox with their Game Pass, they might see a little bit of interest since they're adding in some really small games like Call of Duty, Diablo, and a number of Activision Blizzard titles over 2024. I do see it as being something that does generate a lot more interest for the Game Pass just because of the, the quality of the titles that are being added in. Um, it will be interesting to see how they handle any sort of DLC or additional content if they just keep on adding that in as they have been or are they going to have that little bit of the free version is available for you for game class players but we're going to have a little bit of a, a new content's going to be a bit of a, an aftercharge uh, similar to what they did with with some of their recent titles but i do see the fact that they are bringing in all these activision titles blizzard titles that they will see a, an uptick in interest they certainly haven't been able to hit the numbers that they were hoping to in previous years in terms of previous quarters, in terms of growth to their subscription platform. I do expect that they'll start seeing some large growth percentage numbers. In addition there, Taylor's talking about PlayStation versus Xbox and their walled gardens. Xbox, I think, will be seeing a lot more around a, around a mobile store as to whether or not they are going to move forward with their own mobile store. Um, whether or not that happens in 2024 is a good question. They're going to want to you know, get the acquire the content for it uh, and see what the what it is that they can put together for that store. But I think we'll we certainly will hear more about it. And then they have the the enviable position of having players from mobile across console and across PC. They have the the largest swath of players that that any other publisher or developer has. And I think it's they may be third place in terms of overall console sales. But their breadth of reach is is really going to be unmatched across across any of the other publishers. And interesting to see what kind of pricing, what kind of new types of pricing that they they will have inside the Xbox Game Pass. An ad supported tier is that going to be something where you can have potentially limited access to some of the titles, maybe not all of the titles? Are they going to have a little bit more tiering inside their pricing than they do right now? Right now, it's a little bit more around platform access versus PlayStation's style of 
while there are bands of content that you have access to. So we'll be interested to see how they look at adjusting their, their Xbox Game Pass offerings to see if they can get to a wider consumer base. One of the one of the more interesting things that came out this this last week is is, is Netflix has obviously been moving into into the gaming space. And earlier this week, the three of the top six games were all required a Netflix subscription. Now, I think there's some nuance to that to that data point. All three of them were Grand Theft Auto games, which is a brand in itself. But Netflix is heavily pushing into this space, and it's it's I think it's going to completely change the the ecosystem. And I think one of the, like the biggest tailwinds they have is the the improvements that mobile phones are having there's there, i think there's a lot actually like a decent amount of tailwinds like when we initially saw apple arcade get launched it was we're going to give you this premium offering for for mobile gaming but the premium offering I, I don't think ever seemed to be that premium or that attractive to to consumers but i think where where this is going is due to this uh, the the newest you know, a17 pro chip that is 20% better than the last A16 chip, it's going to allow for some extremely high quality and high fidelity games being played. I mean, they're already doing demos and having you have expectations of being able to play Assassin's Creed on your mobile phone. I mean, this it, it, it almost it almost like brings me back to the the Cyberpunk launch and 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 how every you know you you were building for an ecosystem that wasn't there yet. And I think even Apple had that that issue of we're going to build this ecosystem for premium games, but the phone can't really um, process and, and and allow for truly premium games. We were just we were talking about premium as better than hyper casual, and I don't think that was what consumers really cared for. That wasn't enough to to capture that value that that, that consumers that consumers wanted. And and but I I just do the everything's moving to subscriptions, and I think the ecosystems are getting so powerful that we're going to be playing the the highest quality of games across any ecosystem through these different subscriptions and. It just seems like it's going to look just like traditional media, where we all have four or five subscriptions uh, to to these different content libraries, and at the end of the day, we're still paying a hundred dollars a month for 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 all these subscriptions. But we have access to tons of games, and we can play them anywhere, just directly through these subscriptions. And and if cloud gaming actually does become as powerful and and as as powerful as it can be, we we are going to really have the the limitations that we we have we've had in the past with different hardwares. Yeah, I, I do think it is going to come down to what are the offerings, to some degree, what are the offerings for the developers themselves, the people making the game? As a parent, as a game player, I love subscription. I mean, the my Xbox Game Pass gets used a ton by myself, by my son, just because we're able to try a huge breadth of titles. And especially if, if, if the games are being offered day one on Xbox Game Pass, it's like, well, of course, I'm going to pay the $15 a month, $20 a month for that versus $100 for buying a title outright because I can play all these other games at the same time. Um, but on the on the developer side, they, you know, when when we're in an economy right now where people are having some challenges and trying to make sure that their game's going to do going to do well, and, and this is maybe a little bit more on the free to play side necessarily than on the uh, uh, on the physical or, or, or you know, pay-to-play side of things. But on free-to-play, you're taking a huge risk in terms of you're, you're doing this cash outlay. You're not sure if the game's actually going to make any money when it gets released. Versus if you're going on the subscription, you know that you're going to be paid for your efforts and you're, you're going to make a little bit of money. Hopefully, you've 
done the proper thing and built in a, a bit of a margin inside what your costs are. And Netflix or Apple are, are going to look after that. But the other side of it, the tail end, is where there's a huge difference. You have the potential if you make CoinMaster of bringing in over a billion dollars in revenue if you're on the free-to-play side of things. If you're on the subscription side, you are not bringing in a billion dollars of revenue. The, all the, the upside for that particular title is going to the subscription uh, provider versus uh, you as a developer in reality. Um so I, I do wonder, will, will people, will the developers want to put their titles out there without that potential for seeing, uh, without the potential of seeing a significant upside for their work on the, on the games? And I do wonder if there, that's where the hesitation is on the part of the developers of actually going into making their games ready for like an Apple Arcade or, or a Netflix system when they're not necessarily have that potential for, for having a huge upside. Um, I agree that GTA is its own thing and anywhere it goes, it's going to see big numbers, regardless of what platform it's on. People are just going to go out and buy it. Netflix titles outside of those games have had challenges in terms of, in terms of downloads. If you compare them to free to play titles, that level of friction certainly doesn't allow it to, to directly compete um, just from, from the, for the, against the free to play titles. But I do see a difference, though, between approaches between Apple Arcade and Netflix over for the next year. Apple Arcade, I, I don't see changing that much. I expect to see some, those continue to bring in new games, um, but I don't necessarily see them bringing in huge uh, blockbusters um, uh, for the games. Uh, they'll probably pull out some of their uh, non-performant or, or lesser performant titles in terms of being able to retain players for retention and other retention type KPIs. But Netflix, uh, yeah, they're going all in right now. They've got over 90 games in the pipeline. As mentioned before, they're no longer just mobile. It's mobile and PC. And they're looking to try and get out on as many platforms as they possibly can. They started off on the iOS and uh, Google Play stores but now spreading out to smart TVs. They're going to see wherever they can get the Netflix subscription games out to wherever they can. Console will be an interesting question. Maybe that comes out in you know 2025 if they make it somewhere in the, in the consoles side of things. But I think this year we'll definitely see a lot more titles coming out for mobile and PC. And it'll be interesting to see how, how well the games do on the PC side of things. Well, I guess uh, one area too that we, we haven't talked about and I hope becomes an actual topic at some point is cloud gaming for actual mobile games. We generally are looking at it as usually for the AAA games that are on console or PC, never really streaming a mobile game. And with Microsoft now owning King, there's always the potential that we get cloud gaming version of a Candy Crush, right? I just I just see this as like an interesting opportunity because like Google has always tried to push into the sort of instant play space, right? And they've had trouble doing that. Stadia is like in my personal experience by far the best cloud technology. And they've pretty much just shelved it. Like that's a great opportunity for them to provide that as a service to game developers to help justify their cut, which they are now going to have to defend thanks to the Epic case. Like now they could be like, hey, we're justifying our cut by providing this new cloud service where now you want to try lots of games, you're having trouble acquiring users because they're having to download 10 gigs of data for your game before they can start playing it, which is almost the norm now for a lot of games, sadly. Now they can just stream it. Now they don't have to update it all the time. It's always updated. They could just always play 
right away. And then you look at something like Netflix, where you browse through Netflix to pick a TV show. Imagine if you're doing that for the games. You opened up the Netflix app in the game section, and you're just picking a game, and it's instant loading stream, just like you would a TV show. That's an opportunity for them because they also have streaming tech. Now, I don't know if there's a streaming tech level of being able to handle the input because judging by even just playing some of their interactive stuff, they don't. But again, I think there's some opportunity there, but I don't want to get too deep into that. Just something I feel like doesn't ever get really mentioned. And there's lots of lots of possibilities for the, the whole space. But switching from kind of the consumer side, then we're going to go a bit over to the, uh, the pr- production side of things, looking at, of course, one of the hot topics this year, AI and how that might trend into next year, or is it like at a stopping point? Yeah, that's a great transition over to the game dev side. And I'll start by saying that we publish a really good deep dive on games and AI in the Navig deep dive section. So if you want to kind of read deeper into it, just go check it out. From my point of view, while I have a healthy dose of skepticism around AI-generated content, because it does have its limits, I also believe that the next, call it web or platform leap or game dev leap, will be fueled uh, in some way or form by generative AI. And that's just from what we're already seeing in the space. And the teams that will, that embrace it, will have that competitive edge or more, or, or even like flipping it a little bit, teams that don't embrace it will lose a competitive edge, won't have, won't be playing in the same league or level. So looking at 2024, that, that's a little bit more like longer term, right? So looking at 2024, from my point of view, I think teams are going to continue to explore how AI can be plugged into enhance their toolboxes and seek efficiencies. I think that that's the first stop is just seeking efficiencies. Nimble and adaptable teams will become even more so. So more nimble, more effective, more efficient. On the live ops front, we're going to continue to see all of these optimizations, but nothing revolutionary in my opinion is just going to be better and better because it's something that we've been doing now for many years, if not over a decade, it just gets smarter and smarter as we have better predictive algorithms, better AI, et cetera. I do think that a lot of the focus is going to be on tools, again, that build efficiencies through AI from the ones that are ingrained into game dev, things like Unity 6 that's going to launch next year. They have this whole piece to it that it's called Muse and it's like all their AI tool set or things like Figma, where a lot of teams are prototyping these days and, and building flows and whatnot. And if, if you can speed that process, you, know, you can get to a great game much faster to a myriad of new tools being built from the ground up in AI with lever- leveraging AI. But more importantly, I think that we're going to start seeing the first AI native games being launched. And that is games, game launches built with and in collaboration, quote unquote, I'll, I'll do air quotes there, <laughs> in collaboration with generative AI. And first, we're going to see a lot of efforts for incremental improvements. But the winning teams, I think, are going to be the ones that are pushing the boundary to create more novel, immersive experiences, leveraging AI. And that can be from smarter dialogue, adaptive dialogue, you know, just level balancing a game based on the player and kind of keeping everyone at that like sweet spot of like challenge and, and reward, right? So it's it's just creating a lot of opportunity there to just create these much more unique experiences, both from, from the back end as well as, you know, what the, the player is experiencing. 
uh, on the flip side, I think it also is going to, you know, bring this uh, piece that we're going to continue to wrestle with the ethical dilemmas, the risks of using AI. There's there's a little bit of like a panic, right, of, of in, in values question, especially as we have had a very rough year in the industry with layoffs and a lot of job losses in we can see a lot of it potentially not coming back as part of, hey, let's just use tools to cover these types of roles that before were covered by folks and by people. And then there's also a piece of like creativity and originality. So I think it's going to be kind of like this push and pull of like exciting innovation, but also this wrestling with everything that innovation comes with. So I think I, I from it might be a little bit over overly optimistic, but I'm willing to like put put my prediction hat on this <laughs> and say that I think that 2024 is is going to be pivotal on how we establish the foundation of uh, AI and how we build games in a way that it will have repercussions on how we build games in the long run. So it will either help us rise together or we'll continue to wrestle with a lot of the the challenges. I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts on, on the AI front, on areas that AI will have a significant impact in, in game dev and the game pipeline or in, in other areas of the industry. Yeah, I think one of the areas that, that that's interesting that you brought up at the very end of this is the the, the current trends we're seeing. It, I, I don't. I, I feel like perfect storm is not the right word because it has a very optimistic view or like a positive view. But the 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 fact that we are in the, the in the same year, we essentially have all these layoffs happening due to cost cutting and AI tools elevating flows and processes. These studios aren't going to stop building games. They're just going to start leveraging the cheapest alternatives to to human capital. And the I would say that the biggest concern here is going to be that it all works. If you're if we're talking about like a purely ethical argument of if it all works, there's going to be the concern of, well, we don't need to also rehire then. We we actually found that replacement. It's a percent of the cost that that it used to be, and the quality is good enough. And like that, that, that to me is it's very, it's a it's a very positive indicator for AI as a as a market. But I do not think it's a great indicator for the, the ethical discussion here of like where we're cutting costs and like these individuals are probably not going to get their jobs back if all this does work. But I think what the best thing that is or, or the most interesting aspect of AI is we generally see these new technological innovations as like we've we, we fixed synchronization or we have a better ad targeting platform. With AI, it seems to be touching every single aspect of, of, of all gaming, whether it's creating new assets, whether it's doing live ops, whether it's. Yeah, it's it's optimizing the ad creative process. It's it, it scales everything so much more than we've ever been able to comprehend, and it's it's going to completely change the way we do build games in the future. And I've I've had this this like opinion of like in five years is are like are the most like sought after games going to be the ones that are fully human capital driven? And it's like we're going to start pitching this is this game used no AI to to build it, and that's going to feel even. You know, it's gonna, and I think there's an argument that that it's it's gonna be, it is gonna be more attractive to consumers. We're gonna want that. We're gonna say, no, I don't, I don't want the game that a computer built. I want the game that somebody's you know, creative mind built, and like that, that, like that's going to be, in, in, in like this, this is super interesting concept in the future. I forget what movie it was or what game it was. They, like, they released a trailer, and then at the end of it, said this, this trailer was fully built by AI. The push, the, the feedback on that was terrible. It was 
people were not happy about that. But I think that is a like a future looking view of no, this like I generally like without without you telling me that was AI, my first thought was, oh my gosh, I cre- like that that preview or trailer was really good. Like, that was really cool. And now you're telling me that was built with AI. That's not like that not not the best indicator for the the future of of games hiring and needing these individuals to come back. But I I, I do just think the AI is it's moving so fast. I mean, we're we see tons of developers come to us and we generally ask them about companies we're looking at. Hey, would you ever use this product? And their first thought is we would, but we just built it ourselves. There's so many opportunities out there and there's so many tools out there that allowed experienced developers to to experiment and they're going to because when it comes to building games, it's it's not cheap. And I think that's that's a, a very very much a positive outlook for for where AI is going to go. Yeah, I think one of the questions that I have is definitely around rights in terms of AI-generated content. Do you have the rights to those uh, assets that you've built inside the game? This summer came out the the stories about Steam rejecting titles because the developer wasn't able to say that, yes, they had used AI to generate the the assets. Did they 100% have the rights over those assets? And in those particular cases, Steam is saying, if it's AR generated right now, there's no definitive um, definition of rights ownership over those. So no, we won't publish those for them. We we won't make those games available on the store. Um, So I do think that there are some legal questions that are going to have to be solved um, alongside those ethical questions. Uh, Obviously, those are going to be two separate streams, something maybe entirely legal to do, but still people find uh, challenging on on an ethics side. Um, I certainly see it as as very, for me, it really is a very challenging issue because on one hand, I can see the the potential for a single person who is talented, who is a very talented game designer or a very talented engineer or a very talented artist all of a sudden being able to do much more in terms of creating a game by themselves because they are able to leverage AI to fill in those pieces that they don't have the skill set in order to be able to do. Much more so than what you can do through just being able to use Unity obviously gives you access to a base code base, access to Unity assets and so forth. AI really is a, a bit of a multiplier in that regard and being able to increase what you're able to do as, a, as an individual. But at the same time, it's, I, again, I also struggle with that. I want to make sure that the, the games that are being built are being built with purpose, you create crafted vision and how those things were built. And AI, it isn't there. It's, it's the same as AI has always been. It follows a set of rules. It's just that the rule sets are a lot broader today than they were when we were first introducing AI into games decades ago. So for me, it's it's still a very much a, a very large ethical question. And, and I do have a question as to whether or not what the results really are like. You still see AI-generated characters with six fingers on their hands. And that's something that a human artist would never do unless it was part of a, a, a very crafted vision for that, for that particular asset or game. I think the way I look at it at this point is it's still a tool and it's like when Photoshop came out, yeah, that technically put a lot of people that were having to do a lot of that stuff by hand out of work. When Unity and Unreal took over, a ton of programmers probably essentially were out of a job in the sense that they were not needed to make the game engine anymore. And game engines aren't always as big a deal as they used to be. It was like, oh God, you have a 3D engine. Like you had to know all this stuff to be able to do that. And now you're just like, oh, I just got to load up Unity. But 
to your to, to what Dave's saying, people aren't finishing in that, they're starting in that. And like whether that be building on top of what Unreal does because you have access to the source code or just building tons of stuff on top of what Unity provides, it's providing a new base layer to start from, but it's not finishing for you. It's it's still giving you the six-fingered person. And unless this is a princess bride, you're not going to keep that. And you're going to have to fix that yourself and move on from there. So that's like that's where it comes out to. It's like if it's just another tool that speeds things up and allows us to go back to smaller teams, that just means more game companies potentially for all those people that are laid off. Hey, now you have the opportunity to start a game company. If you're willing to take the time to learn the AI tools, you've actually got an advantage now. Because if you tried to start this company 10 years ago, you would have been actually like short on technology. So I think there's there's positive ways to look at it as well, but we just have to solve the ethical and legal dilemmas in terms of, especially around rights, in, in terms of the a lot of this is really kind of like puking up like a, a combination of other people's stuff. But l- let's be honest, that's most of creativity anyways, just sometimes obfuscated a bit more. So I, I anticipate 2024 will at least start to come to a head on this stuff to figure it out. But it, it'll be tricky because we're talking about on the d- game developer side, but as this transitions over to the player creation side, where we're looking at AI creation tools inside UGC platforms and stuff like that, that that becomes even trickier, right? Because obviously companies like Roblox are wanting to make it so that people can make games much faster from a prompt or from a set of tools that lets them get the ball rolling faster. So they're not like having to learn a coding language to be able to build stuff. I, I, I got to imagine even UEFN would be like, hey, if we can leverage some AI to let people make their own Fortnite islands faster, cool. Like, because they're going to finish it themselves. They're just going to start it with AI. And I think if we look at it, AI as just a starting place where they start to create content, like the, uh, the Bark generator sort of thing that Ubisoft was showing off, they weren't like being like, oh, cool, ship whatever AI does. It's like, cool, we'll use that as just a way to get the ball rolling quick. And I think this just helps with pre-production and production phase, but it doesn't help ship a game like at the end. And that's still going to come down to humans for now. But in terms of the UGC stuff, I think we wanted to cover a little bit about UGC predictions as well, because that's been a hot topic, whether that be about AI or just platforms in general. Yeah, it's going to talk about the two largest platform UGC platforms right now, Roblox, and obviously our, our latest contestant to the world, the Fortnite platform now. Fortnite no longer being considered just a game, it's now a, a full-on platform. And with the release of, of Fortnite Creative, it certainly did increase uh, interest in the platform. We started bringing players back into the Fortnite ecosystem now, I guess we can call it as a whole. They were seeing a decrease in terms of overall MAU. Like if according to active player, if you took a look at the MAU over December timeframe for the last few years, December 2021, it was about $275 million. Last December was about 251 million. Uh, last 30 days is about 235 million. So we are seeing a, you know, a decrease overall in terms of what their, their monthly active users are and a slight decrease inside in terms of their peak number of players in a day. The more recent additions of Lego, of Rocket League, of the music game, is it, it certainly has sparked a lot of interest back into the, the Fortnite platform, same as what Creative did earlier this year. So it is interesting to see the, the number of people coming in, and we're now seeing, similar to what we saw around Roblox, new companies being started up to work on creating experiences inside Fortnite. And where I expect 2024 is going to be in terms of the Fortnite side of things is we're going to continue seeing new companies being started up and really exploring what it is to be a company building experiences inside Fortnite as a whole. 
Um, there are a lot of challenges in, when building inside Fortnite. You can't really treat it as a, a free-to-play platform because there is no deep linking, so it's hard to do any sort of user acquisition and be able to deep link directly into, into a game. And discovery is a huge challenge as well. Unless you're handing out the exact code for your island, it's hard to actually be able to get into to where you want to go. And then on the monetization side, it's, it's the, the early indications are people are having a challenge with, with seeing large monetization. A lot of what I've heard from some people I've talked to, it's, you know, it's closer to hyper-casual monetization than it is any sort of core experience monetization. But these are early, early days. So these are the times when people are still trying to figure out what types of games do well inside, inside the Fortnite platform. What are the things that players are going to gravitate to, not only from in terms of where they're going to spend their time, but what are the things that are actually going to earn the developers money? And if you do a comparison to Roblox, if you look at the number of teams that are making over a million dollars a year inside Roblox, it's something like 110 companies making that much inside Roblox. And Roblox is right now about twice the size of Fortnite. So again, according to Active Player, daily active users is in the 65 million, 65 million user range. So more than double than what Fortnite is seeing. And they're, you know, they're continuing to grow as an overall platform, continuing to bring in users. A number I found incredibly baffling, just given the number of people there are on the earth as a whole, there are apparently 5.3 billion registered accounts for Roblox right now. So there are a lot of people out there apparently with multiple accounts, because I don't think that represents more than half of the people in the entire earth have a Roblox account. But again, on Roblox side of things, yes, they're continuing to better the tool sets. Yes, they're working on better ways of attracting and monetizing the players, trying to take that age range and, and bring it up, which is Roblox, or sorry, Fortnite with the introduction of Lego trying to bring their age range down potentially. But uh, but the developers for Roblox themselves, uh, it still is a challenge in order to actually make money on it. So as I mentioned, you know, there's about 110 groups that make over a uh, million dollars a year in revenue paid out. And this coming across multiple types of games. Apparently there are 4.2 million developers right now inside the Roblox ecosystem. So it is challenging for people. If you're looking at trying to make games for Roblox or for Fortnite right now as a as a professional entity it is challenging to make a decent amount of money there certainly are companies out there that have done it there are VC backed companies GameFam and the Roblox side of things I think is probably the most well known example of that but I expect that on the Fortnite side we'll see more and more teams coming out building building up companies specifically to do experiences on Fortnite and for me, the interesting thing is seeing veterans that have been inside the games industry for 20, 25 years, having that that spark reignited and going, we're really excited about going and building new stuff for Fortnite. I think it will be, 2024 will be on the Fortnite side of things, a lot of trying and testing out new things. Roblox, I think, will continue to see some growth. They'll still be having similar challenges to try and age up their their audience, but I'm not seeing that much difference in terms of what what the Roblox experience is going to be. So I think on the UGC platform side, 
Fortnite is what we're going to see the most new and interesting things over the course of 2024. Yeah, only, only thing I want to add here is, well, well, first of all, I want to just completely agree with the distribution discovery side of UEFN will always be a head scratcher to me. I, I don't really get it. It doesn't make much sense. They're going to need to fix that. But I think that the most important aspect of, of UEFN and why, why I do believe it's going to be very successful is is due to the, I think there's, well, there is a lot of historical precedent that successful games and companies can spin out of already well, well-maintained and successful communities. You have the CSGO with Half-Life. You have Dota with Warcraft. And I, I do believe we are going to see, maybe not next year, but we'll see like the, the those initial indications of a potential billion-dollar business being built through UEFN off of that brand, through the IP cut partnerships they have. And they've now released like the, the different camera angles that would allow you to build a, a MOBA or a side-scroller or your an, another battle royale. But I think that's what, what initially failed with, with UEFN was everyone was just building another version of Fortnite. And that's not what people wanted. People wanted another version Again, a completely new game. And I think they, they've really pushed into this space from technology and partnerships to, to allow for creators to be able to really explore what can be built in that ecosystem. And I, I think we'll continue to see funding the same way we have with Roblox for these independent studios and publishers that will build directly in those ecosystems. And, we'll, we'll, and, and I, I really do think UEFN is going to be that that next massive platform, but I, I would like to see them figure out some discoverability. Yeah, it's it's going to be a, a real problem, I think, in general, just because like the more you encourage people to get on and start building stuff themselves, the more that discoverability becomes a problem because it's just more and more people making stuff. And I think Fortnite also has the problem that it's a lot more complex to develop for when it comes to the programming side than using Lua in uh, Roblox. I mean, versus definitely trying to be more of a advanced programming language, even though it's actually like supposed to be. For lower level, it's definitely not a very simple programming language. And I think Roblox kind of wins a bit there in terms of accessibility for kids. Now, obviously, uh, I'm certainly not trying to underestimate kids. They could certainly like uh, get way up there and just you know totally understand that stuff and be awesome at it. But it's a pretty big barrier to entry because it's not an easy program or, or even forgiving programming language. It's very strict to try and protect the things from crashing, but also... When you're learning programming, that's not something that's fun to deal with. So I definitely anticipate some problems for that there. But uh, it'll be really interesting to see like what what they're actually going to do going forward and whether or not this becomes a huge game platform. But with Verse being much more difficult, I see the advantage than going to game development teams versus individual players that want to make their own game uh, and whether or not that becomes like something that they end up doing like as a as a business more often, and I think we see that, and it, it's just an interesting twist that we're in this position now because we had so many of those mods that you mentioned that were like turning into their own games, whether it be auto chess or battle royales, which are also came out of a mod, or all these other games that were mods originally. All of them were stuck with this problem of how to monetize because they were part of a game that didn't really allow that kind of monetization. And so it's ironic that we're now actually flipped to a system where monetization is part of the platform. And therefore, you are, are actually encouraged to do it because it benefits both you and the developer. Imagine if Blizzard, instead of being like so ridiculous about their mods and wanting to control it, had been like, cool, Warcraft is now a platform. You could build your own UGC and we're going to like monetize it. Like the way they started to kind of lean into a StarCraft arcade is kind of ironic that they ended up in this position being helping build two big genres with MOBAs and tower defense both coming out of their platform, yet they failed to capture them and, and in a boneheaded sense just would double down on on taking the stupid approach there but uh, speaking of like investments and, and, and building up companies around this sort of thing we just want to really look look really quickly at uh, the investment side of things next year as of course money is going to be a big driver of a lot of this yeah this 
this has obviously been a constant trend even this year. Investments down, VCs are getting on the sidelines a little bit more. It's becoming extremely hard to fundraise, especially within the studio space. Um, I, I I quickly we're looking at some some data from from this past year, and I think one of the most glaring points we saw, which I, I again similar to other arguments, always has nuance to it. This is the available public data that you have on VC investing, where we we've, we've seen fifty percent less VCs across the market invest in more than five rounds of at least $2 million. Those are essentially seed rounds. So that's, in, in my view, this is 50% less seed businesses are being funded. And what I think this actually is, is, is going to, is, is going to usher in is this is, is similar to the, what we're talking about with AI, which is people are going to have to find a way to cut costs. They're going to have like, the business can't stop running. And we're going to see a lot of people probably move into lower budgets, leveraging more technology, because funding is not going to be available. I think this is also going to be a great opportunity for platforms like, like UEFN and Roblox as people are, as people are thinking more of, I, I need to find a way to hack distribution. I need to find a way to hack user acquisition. And we're going to start, and we're going to see a lot of, a lot of these studios potentially pivot into building games specifically for these ecosystems. Studios are not being funded as, as much as they, they were in the past. And I think what's, what's happening is there's an, I know, I know me and Dave have talked about this before as well. Is like this, they're, VC investing for games is, is tough. It's, it's a capital intensive business. And there's, I think there's a lot of tailwind saying that it might not be as capital intensive as it used to be. But the, the, the issue there is how do we continue to fundraise or how do I invest in a company today that's going to be able to continually fundraise in the future so that they can launch a quality game and hopefully return our investment and, and more on top of that. I know we're, we've, we've seen a drastic increase in games funding shifting away from content into technology over the last year. I do believe that's going to continue. And I think this is going to open up massive opportunities for, for publishers to come in and find great quality teams that they can invest in or buy for very cheap and bring into their own ecosystems. We're seeing companies like, like NetEase drastically increase investments into their own first-party studios. I know we're we're also seeing companies like Tencent pull out of investments and not move forward with as many as they they used to be doing, and so I I, I do think we're just going to continue to see this trend of of game studios specifically taking the brunt of a lack of investment. But the general I think generally in, in, for the entire gaming ecosystem, we're we're going to see a lot of people, a lot of companies struggle to raise. I think we're going to see a lot of shutdowns next year or a lot of pivots into into new markets. And I think we're already seeing that. We've seen a ton of companies pivot. From blockchain companies to to AI companies, and like that, that that that's one initial trend. But I think we'll we'll also start to see a lot of companies try to pivot even potentially outside of gaming. Technology may already be built, but the fundraising is not going to be there for for your games company as as much as it was in 2021. And I just think traditionally, the like AAA or AA type of games are really just going to struggle to to, to raise capital with trying to pitch. We're going to need 10, 15, 20 million dollars to to build this game. I think I think I think the general prediction is it's going to continue, and I think it's going to get worse. I, I just say we we see this on a day to day basis now of of how hard it is to actually get people to commit to these rounds. It's easy to wait now, and people don't want to take those early stage bets as as much as they used to. And I think a lot of capital is going to shift into I think more e- more easily justifiable investments, which is general basic SaaS businesses that can 
potentially scale revenue at a much earlier or a much quicker pace than, than a traditional studio would be able to. Yeah. And, that, and that's pretty broad across games. Right. But like, I think maybe getting more narrow into it because of the business having shifted a little bit over the last two years and, and hopefully being resilient. Uh, I think it'd be good to like focus a bit on like, what, what does this mean for mobile gaming in general? Because the capital intensive part through UA and the difficulties with that, and just, just how that might affect some of these different platforms and whether or not that becomes like a big part of this, or that's just, a side part to the the console and PC side. I, I actually think mobile is, you know, has has taken a lot of the the, the brunt of this in, in initially because it was always easy. Like we're gonna we're gonna fund the the X developers from name your big big game studio to build the next build the next Riot or build the next EA. Uh, but in mobile, it, it, it's just there's there's so much there's so much concern around the the future of privacy and data integrity, how we target users, and and the I would say the, the the increasingly competitive landscape. People don't play two games at once. You may have two games downloaded that you're playing, you're switching off of, but you play one game, and there's always a substitute. And that's why we see a lot of these successful companies like a like a Voodoo Games. Like their entire strategy is is based off of this. Uh, I, I'm going to monetize you as much as I can in the first couple of days, and then hopefully you move on to our next game in our portfolio. But I actually, but I think the move into premium games on mobile is going to then increase that investment appetite for investors. Ecosystems adopted by the most people across all of games. No one has no like no no console provider has more users than Apple or Google does for their their phones. So I do think mobile games will come back. I think privacy will be, or I think this the user acquisition will will be fixed. It'll just that that will just create another very big company that does figure out how to do this in the most effective and cost-effective way possible. I will I will asterisk one of the pieces that you said of users don't play more than one game. I think it is very genre-dependent and very kind of audience and segment-dependent, which is part of the broader mobile ecosystem. I think that's part of what we're going to see over the next year in mobile is specifically just certain genres coming back in some of them getting much smaller in terms of what what they can do and the type of audiences that they can retain because that's that's going to be like the biggest piece and it does the 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 piece that you were saying of like hey the hyper casual strategy of like get as much money as possible within like the first session like that's that's no longer feasible so i think it's it's a little bit more nuanced than just saying like you know players only play one one game and just to almost like close a, close the conversation with a little bit of a little bit more info on in thinking around like what we could potentially see on mobile, I think it's it's worth just acknowledging what you're saying, Taylor. Of mobile has taken a lot <laughs> the last few years. Uh, we've been through six years of constant shifts with the within the mobile red ocean, starting with Apple's 2017 App Store changes that triggered effectively the death of organic discovery. In reaching a peak with performance marketing getting pretty much, you know, killed as well, or a huge shakeup thanks to the introduction of ATT and all this stuff. So what I what I do think is that 2024 feels a little bit more hopeful in terms of teams starting to find their footing in a new steady state for mobile. So we've seen like all these seismic shifts in the platform itself and the ability of te- for teams to navigate that from all points of view, from like funding, what you were mentioning, to the app stores changes and all, all that and user acquisition being a challenge. 
which I do think that we'll likely see mobile stabilized and start growing in, in 2024, which Data AI also released that in, in their forecast for calling a very small, I would say almost like a flat year, but a small 4% growth year over year, being the first year of growth since 2021. So getting a little bit back to the trajectory that we were on before. Tying some of the topics that we've covered, you know, subscription services will continue to land games from talented teams that are willing to take that route and not go for the risk of big free-to-play reward, lower chance, but higher upside. One topic that we haven't covered is off-platform slash web stores. That's going to be, it's been a big push. I think it's going to be more ubiquitous across teams. And even now, again, according to Data AI, casino games already generating 25% of their revenue roughly of platform. I think Excel is going to be a big winner here in terms of businesses doing really well because uh, they positioned themselves excellently in, in that space at this point. Alternative app store distributions will probably be more bluntly explored now that Epic has been pushing the boundary there. Microsoft reportedly is working on this and we mentioned that earlier. Uh, but I think that at the core, teams are going to have to focus on high quality with smaller teams move away from small incremental improvements, really try to push the boundary of the games that are presenting to players, refocus on building games uh, with deep engagement, monetization design, regardless of the genre, and going back for, to more of like these live ops forever games, quote unquote, to, from what we were doing before in the last few years, which is like more snackable games. I would, I would call it like these quick Quick fixes. That also means the balance of IEP revenue versus ad monetization and free to play. I think it's going to shift back to IEP. We're already seeing that. But at the end of the day, biggest point you made, uh, Taylor, is teams are going to have to create get creative to solve the distribution problem. They need to find the users. It's still a very crowded ecosystem, and it will continue to be so. So if you want to play there, teams are going to have to really take this as part of the design of the game and not an afterthought. I think that the teams that are trying to like do fake UGC or appeal to platforms like TikTok as an afterthought or push for influencer marketing as an afterthought are not going to be as effective as those that really bring it in as part of like the DNA of the game and have design considerations for shareability, virality, community building, and really having that as part of, of the game. So I think it'll, it'll be an interesting year to see like what what are the games that end up kind of cracking the the quote unquote new formula. I don't think it's it's going to be as simple as that for mobile, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see that in in twenty twenty four. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of that growth even this year. I think on the Google Play Store they're seeing a, a tiny bit of upward movement, but I agree. Twenty twenty four certainly is going to be. Not a huge uptick. <clears throat> I think basically exactly what you said, Tammy. It's it's going to be hard for performance marketers to be able to allow for those huge spikes in terms of overall revenue growth. Um, it'll be interesting to see how many people, in addition to trying to have uh, really solid integration through social platforms or through alternative methods of, of, of distribution or or even just getting the message out, how many companies are going to go back to brand marketing when it comes to trying to get the word out around the titles, which I think is an interesting thing for a lot of mobile companies. They've built out entire teams around 
performance marketing. How can we get players at the cheapest for the cheapest numbers that are you know directly targeted and are going to have to actually look at do we actually change the makeup of our marketing departments and, and go into some additional brand marketing on top of some of the social marketing side of things? I do think that mobile mobile is and has been for a little while a very the biggest chunk of revenue inside the, the games industry as a whole. I do think it will be interesting to see where mobile's games go. There's the talk of Apple saying, hey, you can now play console quality games on your on the latest and greatest iPhone. It's been interesting to see what NetEase, for example, has been doing with their games. They produce games using the Unreal Engine. They are gorgeous looking games on the iPhone. None of them have really blown up. So the question for me is, well, what is it that actually is going to make the games do really well? It's not going to be the graphics by themselves. So you may have a game that looks like it's a console quality but it actually needs to be something that is something that mobile game players want to have. Quality graphics by themselves or that upper echelon uh, bar for visual quality or fidelity um, isn't the thing that's going to necessarily make or break it for the games. But I, I, I agree with you, Tammy, that I think it's going to be given the financial challenges around uh, funding that people are going to be looking at. How can I create smaller games, dis- distribute the games? through non-traditional channels. And when it comes to funding some of the user acquisition side, not necessarily going the VC route, but looking for alternative methods. There are companies that will you know, help provide UA funding for percentage of revenue rather than going the, the route of, of VCs. So I think it would be interesting to see the not only the, the alternative paths for distribution, but alternative paths for, for funding for, for acquiring the players. Well, one uh, additional final twist, too, we'll have to all this to look forward to next year is uh, in the Epic versus Google case, the remedies were proposed uh, on top of some some monetary penalties that were meant to be used in a certain way. There was also sort of an order to start to allow for some direct payment and kind of move outside of requiring Google's billing system, which was uh, supposed to be putting a little bit on parity with some of the EU rules that been put out. So we'll see what the ramifications of that are. Obviously, I'm sure Google will try and appeal that stuff and try and block it, but we may have, maybe that will be the savior for mobile games is not better funding, not better UA, just a better margin on the in-app purchases might make a big difference. At least Epic seems to think so, or they wouldn't be spending so much money fighting that. Uh, but but we'll see. That's definitely going to be a 2024, will this be a big thing and will it affect Apple kind of question. So, 2024 uh, or 2034 by the time it makes it through all the appeals. You know, I don't know. It, it's, it depends on whether or not Google is proactive in trying to look like the good guy and make some changes and concessions early and in the appeals then hoping that that makes them look good. But we'll see. Google likes to do a little bit of that where they're like, hey, we're trying to do the right thing over here, but we're like, well, we have secret meetings now and try and fix this. So who knows, right? That's uh, that's. I do predict though that 2024 is a year we could see some slight shakeup around uh, payment systems and billing. And that could be a big factor in a lot of this. But we'll see what that ends up being as, uh, of course, all of them are fighting tooth and nail to avoid the, uh, the inevitable future of more money, hopefully going to developers and less to platforms. But we'll see. But I hope, hopefully uh, everyone out there enjoyed the sort of like very chock full episode we got here because it is the last one of the year. So we want to make sure it counted and that you had plenty to listen to during your holiday break, of course. So that a little bit extra length there just means more to do when spending time away from the family for a brief moment or, or driving somewhere if you are flying, whatever. You can, of course, download it to your phone. Let's do it in airplane mode. Why not? 
if, if you get a long flight, this is plenty for that. So definitely do that if you can. But I definitely want to wish everyone, uh, of course, all of my panelists, not just you guys, but also everyone we've had throughout the year. I think it's been a great year for the Novic Roundtable in terms of a lot of great discussions, a lot of great thought, a lot of sort of initial things and then follow-ups and then conclusions around things like Microsoft Act- Activision cases, the Epic versus Google. We had a lot of good sagas of stories this year that I think should make for an interesting 2024 as we start to see the repercussions. So hopefully the predictions here were at least insightful enough to uh, drive some interesting reflections by the end of next year. But anyways, I want to wish everyone a happy holidays. Uh, I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that you're having a great end of the year and a, and a great new year and starting off 2024, right? As I mentioned, we will not be here next week. If you've already listened to this by that point, go ahead and listen again. Why not? Or catch the back episodes you missed. And also make sure to, of course, to subscribe to the newsletter, which is, you know, has been putting out tons of content. I think we'll be taking a little bit of a break during that, that week, next week as well, but plenty of backlog. I imagine, I don't think it, anyone's really fully caught up on everything we've put out uh, with all the good stuff out there. So make sure you subscribe to that on novic.co. And uh, of course, we will catch you all in the new year. So in the meantime, have a great one. And thanks, everyone. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.